Welcome to episode 14 of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. This time around, I spoke to Beth Lilly. As I'm recording this podcast at the end of a very busy and eventful school year, my 11th as a teacher, I thought it would be interesting to talk to someone who has just finished their very first year in teaching, and Beth fits the bill perfectly. Beth is an NQT who, despite coming from the wrong side of the Pennines, I got on with very well. In a wide-ranging interview, we covered the following things and more. How does Beth plan her lessons and why has she developed the Beth Lilly two-page TES rule? Beth takes us through a lesson she planned and delivered on introducing exact values of trigonometric ratios, a topic brand new to GCSE Maths. She also describes a lesson on solving linear equations that did not go quite so well and what she learnt from it. We discuss how Beth has changed as a teacher over the course of the year, including how she has responded to feedback from lesson observations. We really dig deep into the key issues of trying to maintain a work-life balance, which is the number one reason for teachers leaving the profession. And Beth shares her weekly routine that allows her to have some kind of a life. We talk about the NQT year in general, looking at what surprised Beth the most and how it differs to her PGCE year. We talk about the support Beth has received and think about what makes a good NQT mentor. We then turn our attention to Beth's geeky obsession with the ancient Greeks and how she brings them into her lessons. And finally, Beth shares some tips for student teachers and NQTs as well as her big three. As I hope will come across, Beth is an incredibly passionate, enthusiastic teacher, and I really hope her honesty about the highs and lows of the job, together with her tips and coping strategies, will be of great use to those of you entering the profession, and even old-timers like me. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Just the usual plea that if you're enjoying these podcasts to please leave a star rating or a quick review on iTunes. It just keeps a numbers geek like myself very happy. Not that I check my iTunes ranking every night or anything. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Beth Lilly for what quite possibly is the most northern podcast you are ever likely to hear. It's maybe the maths equivalent of a mashup between Corrie and Emmerdale. Anyway, I really hope you enjoy it, and as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Beth, well, let's start with your math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Okay, so my favourite number is the number nine um, because I like the patterns that it creates. The fact that all the digits um, of the multiples add up to nine just seems quite elegant. Oh, nice. What what kind of patterns uh, of number nine grab you? Um, just the, I don't know, just the fact that they add up and then the fact that when you're going up up to 100, that it's like one and eight and then two and seven three and six it's just nice nice okay i'll give you that i'll give you that and when you um when you're doing kind of nine times tables and stuff with the kids are you a fan of the kind of finger technique for for knowing your nine times tables with the you know one finger down and eight fingers up and all that kind of stuff only if they need to use that i'd rather them be able to do it without and just remember them numerically Got it. Nice. Fantastic. Well, speed dating question number two. What was your favourite topic in maths as a student? 
Um, the one that sticks out is I remember differentiation and integration at A-level. Um, and I used to find it really satisfying to be able to find the C when I integrated, which is really sad. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I mean, only on a maths podcast could you get away with that kind of answer. <laughs> but yeah, I like that. And has that translated through to your teaching? Have you had a chance to teach A-level yet? No, not yet, which is a bit of a shame. But I'm glad I'm not because I think there's so much on GCSE to get through that I'd rather perfect that first. That sounds, that sounds a good plan. Fantastic. And final question for you, Beth. Uh, what job would you like to do if you weren't a teacher? That's such a difficult question because there's so many other things that I'd like to do. But um, I reckon I'd probably be a restaurant manager or a software developer. Flipping heck. Well, (laughs) have you any experience of either of those? Um, Well, I used to work at a restaurant and um, I used to be kind of on the managing side of things occasionally. So I've seen that side of things. And then I used to develop Excel things when I worked at the NHS. So a bit of experience in both. Nice. Fantastic. Well, that that fuses seamlessly onto uh, how you became a teacher. So can you just talk us through um, perhaps from from school or university or wherever you want to pick it up, um, just through the steps that led you to, to where you are today, Beth? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I originally applied to be a teacher straight after uni, um, but I kind of changed my mind after going on a five week trip to Sri Lanka, kind of thought, do you know what, I want some time just to do something a little bit different. So um, I ended up working in the hospital instead. Um, And then two years later, I thought, no, do you know what, I'm ready now. I want to be a teacher. So I had a friend who'd actually been to Huddersfield University and she said that it was an amazing experience and she really liked the uni, whereas I went to Leeds Uni and I did enjoy it, but I thought, oh, somewhere different might be good. Um, So I went to Huddersfield and I got in, thank goodness. Um, I had um, Ed as my tutor, so Ed Southall, and um, him and all of the other tutors were just incredible. my first placement was in a middle school and my second placement was in a high school. Um, it was a really great time. The only thing that um, I would have changed is the distance that I travelled to my, um, my placement schools because they were quite hard. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And that um, you've, you've struck lucky there with getting Ed Southall as a, as a tutor. That, that's got to be one of the best around, right? Yeah, absolutely. He was so good. And also, because he's still teaching at the same time, you have, I don't know if you have that little bit extra faith in him that he knows what he's talking about still. <laughs> and that's, am I right in saying that's a, a secondary PGCE course, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it is. Yeah, for maths. Got it. And I, I wonder, Beth, you mentioned how you, you wanted to be a teacher kind of straight from uni and then went away and kind of uh, came back to it a couple of years later. Yeah. What, what made you want to become a teacher in the first place? Um, so my mum's a teacher, actually. Um, so I've always thought teaching was a good career to go in. So although she'll tell me not to do it, when <laughs> she was like, "Don't do it, Beth." <laughs> but I've always kind of tutored people as well. So I used to tutor my younger cousin when I was at school, um, and I did like little tutor groups of my own when I was at school. So I've kind of always been in on that maths teaching thing. Got it. Fantastic. Well, let's move now to uh, the section of the show where I ask teachers to describe about their routines, about how they plan lessons. And I'm particularly interested uh, in your answers to this, Beth, as, as, as an NQT, because often we've had very experienced teachers um, on, on the podcast this year, and everyone kind of plans and approaches lessons differently. So I'm interested in, in your take on it. So if you want to pick any topic, perhaps one that you've taught this week. I know you, as we're recording this, we're kind of in the end of summer term. So just pick any any topic 
and if you could just talk us through the topic, the class that you'd aim this at, and the lesson planning process from from start to finish. Yeah, of course. So, um, I first of all, when I plan a lesson, I think about what topic it is that I'm going to do, and if I haven't taught it before, I'll maybe ask other people at school, like, "Oh, what tips do you, might you have? You know, what problems have you found when you're planning that?" Um, because obviously, if I haven't taught it at all before, I haven't got a clue really what's yeah. going to come up, um, except for my own thoughts. But sometimes, as you when you do your guess, your misconceptions, I got a lot of those wrong. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't really have a clue sometimes. Um, so I ask them for advice, and then I always try to look at you know like the GCSE revision guides. Yes. I look at those to see what kind of things they are expected to know. Do you know so that I get the full picture. Um, so, for example, when I did trigonometry, um, I only introduced it like two weeks ago, I think, to my top set year eights because I, I wanted to be the one to introduce it to. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I thought I'd start off with doing Pythagoras, right angle triangles, because we've just done that and obviously it leads in quite nicely. Um, you've got some new terminology. Then I looked at what they need to know. So I thought, well, the new specification says that I need to speak, teach special angles. Yes. And I've taught that to kids before, and they've already known trigonometry, and it's not really clicked with them because they know that they can just use the calculators. Yes. So actually, I thought, do you know what? I'm going to lead with the special angles and wait until they use the calculators. Nice. Okay, I'm liking this so far. Um, so I led on with that. I, generally try to give them quite a blank PowerPoint slide. So I had like a right angle triangle. We had to go through and label um, the sides and pick out which one is opposite and adjacent. And they came up with those words on their own, which was really nice. Um, and then I think I just gave them the fact that it was an isosceles right angle triangle. And then they had to work out the angles and then work out the lengths. So I'd said that one of them was one. Um, using Pythagoras, they could find the other lengths. So it actually meant that they were leading through themselves. Um, and then I just said to them, right, find out the ratios of the different sides. And then, as an aside, use your calculator and find out what cos 45 is and so on. Um, and then we went through and started to match them together, which was quite nice, really. And it worked quite well. And can you just um, j just tell me this? Is this, is this? Are you doing this in front of the whole class? Are they listening to you and kind of jotting things down? Or are you giving them little questions to, to do and then kind of come back in five minutes? What, what's the actual process of, of, of this stage of the lesson look like, Beth? Okay, so I would have put the slide up on the board um, so that everyone can have a go at it. As a class, we've had like a bit of a discussion, like me asking certain questions and getting random kids to tell me like what particular um, sides were called or how we could work things out. But I'll give them a good two, three minutes to chat about individual bits when I think, do you know what, I think we're going to need some time to think about this. So my tables are all set in fours. Um, so the idea is that they originally start talking to the learning partner, so the one sat next to them, and then once they've come up with a bit of an idea or come up against a bit of a brick wall, then they'll have a chat with the people opposite them as well um, and see if they've got anything that they can contribute. Nice. And then where does the lesson go from there? Um, so once we've managed to discover things and we've kind of started off and we've done in a bit of an example, they've written down something so they'll have drawn the picture in the first place and hopefully got quite a bit through on their own. Um, then we'll do an ex a full example and make sure that they've got that and then I'll give them some questions to have a bit of a go at 
on their own. Although um, I generally, depending on how what the topic is, I'll give them a couple of like diagnostic questions just to check that they're along the right lines at good, least. Good plug there, Beth. Keep them coming. That's what I like to. And um, just, just like in all seriousness, here, um, how do you? And this isn't a leading question or anything, but I'll send you the money later. How how do you? How how are you using um, diagnostic questions with within uh, that particular lesson context? Okay, so with that one, I was using it more to be able to label the sides and say, do you know what, I know that for this particular question, I'm going to use, say, cause or sign um, and to show that they can at least get to that point. So I'm not finding out that they know how to find the full answer because then why bother giving them the questions yeah. afterwards? Um, so, yeah, that's when I use it in that particular lesson. But in general, um I'll sometimes use it at the beginning of next follow-on lessons to make sure that we're kind of on the right lines with that too. Got it. Fantastic. And what? How do? How does that lesson wrap up? Um. Generally, we finish up with writing about what they've learned. So they write a couple of sentences using some of the keywords that we've learned over the lesson. Um. About how to do something or what they found difficult. Um, and struggled on to make sure that next time they come back to that topic they can read the little message and say oh last time I kept on forgetting to do this so next time I'm not going to do that got it fantastic and this may make me sound like some kind of awkward observer but how um how do you know that the kids have made progress within that lesson how do you know what they know um, so in general, I'll do the diagnostic questions because I do those with colours in the planners. So I should have mentioned that before. But um, so they have red, amber, green, and a white page in the back of the books in planners, so that they can show me whichever colour it is. So I colour code the question, the answers on the diagnostic questions. Nice. Um, so that I can see everybody, and then I just I swan around the classroom and I check that they're doing it right. You know, like I just look over the shoulders a bit more than um, anything. Obviously, I'll do some peer and self-assessment. I always give them the answers at the end to make sure that they've got it um, or they'll do it as a random thing. Um, but, yeah, I think I get more from actually just reading the books, which is a bit of a, a cop-out, maybe. No, no, not at all. <laughs> and ju just to give us some context, Beth, what, what's your school like? Um, how many would you be expecting in this class? And is it comprehensive? What, what, what type of school is it? Okay, so um, my school, I've got 32 kids in a class. Um, generally down to about set three when you start to get a few less. My bottom set last year had 18 in. Um, so they're quite big classes, but the kids are behaving absolutely spot on. So they don't really misbehave. So it's not an issue where you have to like make sure that they are behaving. You just have to, it's just the differentiation that then you've got to keep your eye on, I suppose. Got it. Fan fantastic. And um, do your lessons um, have any regular features in them? Are there like something that you always try and include in, in your lessons in general? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm always trying to put in the written bit, so writing down what they've learned and how well they've done. Um, I'll generally have um, lemon and herb, medium, hot and extra hot questions. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and always... An example in a starter, so my starter will usually be related to whatever the topic is that we're doing, but um, to make sure that they've got that bit before they move on. Got it. And with the uh, with the lemon, herb and, and heart questions, are the kids themselves choosing which ones of those they do or are you kind of assigning different ones to different kids? Okay. No, so I'll have like four questions on the board to start with related to the topic, of which are... Um, 
show the kind of question that's going to be in those lemon and herbs. So they'll quickly do those over about three minutes just to see which part they get up to and where they start to struggle. Um, the first section where they get a question wrong, that's the colour that they go on to next. Oh, got it. That sounds like a, a really kind of nice structure that the kids are used to. And uh, often in, in these podcasts, the, the, the message coming through from teachers is, is getting that consistency of routines right. And it, it sounds like... Um, this is something that your kids are used to and, and, and works well in the class. I, I like the sound of this, Beth. And what about what about technology? Are you a fan of using that? How, how would that come into play in your lessons? Um, well, I have to use technology all the time because I would die if I didn't have PowerPoint <laughs> or notebook. Um, so I use my smart notebook. Um, I don't really use notebook as much because although it's quite quick and easy to plan on sometimes, I prefer to have it on PowerPoint. So if I'm knocking something up really quickly... Um, then I'll go to the notebook. And in general, if I'm doing an extra aside, I'll go to the notebook because it's so much easier to add in an extra blank page. Yes. Um, but I prefer to use PowerPoint in general because I think it just looks a bit smarter. It's easier to lay things out. Um, yeah, so I prefer PowerPoint, but I, I like to use notebook at the same time. And can I, do, can I just ask with PowerPoint, um, and again, this, this is probably... I, going to sound a bit of a leading question but are you um are you kind of pre-writing all the lesson beforehand and going it going in and delivering it on powerpoint or are you kind of putting the bare essentials on the slides and then kind of having flexibility and adding get using the pen tool to add stuff in and um, depending on how the lesson's going if that makes sense oh yeah definitely i put on um so i put on my starter question I put on start of an example, but I, I only ever have the question of the example. I wouldn't ever have the full thing written out. I started doing that in my PGCE, and my mentor immediately told me, please don't do that. She Ideal. was like, it's taking you too long, because it was. And it like for certain types of questions, like 5 times 5 equals 25, that's fine. But then when you get into fractions, it's just... Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. And and it's a bigger issue than that, Beth, as well, because I think, and again, listeners will have to forgive me because I bang on about this all the time, but if, you, if you've put an example question on the board and you say to, to, to kids, what's, what's your first step here? How would you approach this question? All it takes is for a kid to say something slightly different to the, the big thing that you've spent hours the night before preparing, and the whole lesson's derailed. It's an absolute disaster. So, yeah, those people listening who are, and especially NQTs, or student teachers who think PowerPoint's a bad thing. I'm a huge, huge fan of PowerPoint and, and exactly as Beth's describing using it. Now, that, that, that sounds excellent. Um, any other technology, Beth, that comes into play? Um, not that I can think of. Um, no, because, well, in my school, they're not allowed the phones at all. So I couldn't do a lesson where, say, I used QR codes or something. Yes. I know it's something that's getting quite popular. So in some ways, I'm a little bit envious. But at the same time, not quite as much. I use, um, I don't really use the computers very often, you know, to get an IT room. I yes. booked them out today, and then the first time I've ever known this happened, that I, the actual internet in school crashed. Oh, are you joking? No, so we were supposed to do research in a mathematician. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> It ended up being a little bit different than that. <laughs> <laughs> and what are you, again, just, just because uh, like every teacher listening will have found themselves in that position, but perhaps trainees and NQTs won't have done. What, what are you doing in that situation, Beth? You've booked out a computer room, you've got the lesson sorted that you want to deliver, and the internet's down. What, what happens there? 
panic. <laughs> yeah, um, so I actually ended up getting them to make some really cool revision posters, which I thought, I'm not really sure how this is going to go, so I'm going to give them like 15 minutes to make a start and then see how it goes. And if it's if they're not on task and engaged enough, then I'm going to f- give them something else. I had something else waiting, um, like a quiz on the board. Um, but actually, the posters looked great, so I was really pleased. That's nice. <laughs> You've turned that around. <laughs> um, the, the other thing I wanted to ask you about lessons is um, how how do you keep all your lessons organised? What's your what's your? I know it's a bit of a geeky question, this, but what, what's your kind of folder structure like on on your computer? How how do you how do you organise your life basically? <laughs> well, I organise my school life. Um, <laughs> I've got. You know the Suffolk Maths website? Yes. Tons and tons of resources on, but you can download the zip files of number of um, algebra and data and so on. So actually that has loads of file structures in it with um, the topics within those areas, which is really useful. So I use those. Ah, nice. Okay. And then so you, you essentially use that as a template and then bang your stuff kind of in with that. Yeah, absolutely. Got it. Which I hated when I was at uni because they made us have a different file structure completely at uni. <laughs> it broke my heart. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're an independent woman now, Beth, so yeah, have your own folder structure. And um, what about your... Um, oh, this the other thing I was going to ask you there, and this... Uh, how and again forgive me for for sounding a bit sad again here but how have you got stuff backed up is it is it all on a laptop is it on a on a pen drive what what, what's your strategy there um i've only recently just backed it up so i had it all on a memory stick so that i could easily access it i don't have to worry about the internet or anything like that um or have it all on the school computers because i often bring work home or i definitely used to um so i have it on a memory stick and i've backed up my memory stick like two weeks ago (laughs) got it got it fantastic um again i'm sure i've 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 mentioned this many a time but my my entire life and work life and and every life was on the on my laptop and i used to have a backup that it was at me mum's and a backup that it was at me dad's and I used to religiously back it up every kind of two months because I thought if this goes I might as well just quit now because I have nothing left I mean, everything, everything everything I've ever done was on there and then I, I now back stuff up in the cloud and I've I've never slept better at night since knowing that just stuff's floating around somewhere safe so it may, yeah may, maybe when, the, when, when stuff grows so it kind of it overtakes the memory stick go in the cloud Beth would be, uh, would be my advice there yeah <laughs> what about um, can you just tell us what's your scheme of work look like at, at at your school how kind of prescribed is it what you have to use in lessons and, and what kind of supporting resources are there um so our scheme of work is relatively flexible we have it spread um spread out over grades so rather than it being all of year nine will learn sequences and so on each year it's actually depending on the set what grid are we working at which has its good sides and downsides. I think our head of maths came in newly this year and she's not such a fan of it, perhaps. Um, So I think it's uh, potentially going to change, especially since the grades are more spread out. So because we've got nine now, we're covering two grades a year. Um, So in general, though, we're supposed to all work towards doing number at the same time so that if there are any set changes, then they're doing similar topics. Um, rather than completely separate ones. 
I see. But you, you have, you're not directed as to what you have to use in those particular lessons. It's very much, this is what the kids should know, and then it's up to you to choose how you deliver it. Would that be right? Yeah, absolutely. It's really good um, because we just have total freedom. As long as we're teaching the kids the stuff that they need to know, we can do it in any way that we like, which is really, really, really good. Um the only thing is that we have to do a grid descriptor test at the end of achieving grid for our number, for example. We do a little test that we've all put together. Oh, okay. And does one of those kind of grade descriptor tests, is there like a, a grade five number one, a grade six number one and so on? Yeah, exactly. Got it. Fantastic. Perfect. Well, um, before we move on to talking about lessons that don't go so well, I wonder, can, can you remember what your first lesson was like? And this could either be your first lesson as a trainee teacher or the first bit you ever did as a trainee teacher or your first kind of proper lesson at the start of this year in your new school. Any, any memories of those? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> my first lesson that I ended up teaching um, was, I think it was my first day of my PGCE. So my host teacher was going to a conference for the last lesson and she said to me, oh, the head teacher is going to cover this lesson, but um, I'm just going to tell you what the kids are supposed to be doing so that you can help her out. But then the head teacher was dealing with something and so she didn't turn up straight away. So obviously I ended up introducing things and I mean, it was all under control and she came in and she was like, oh, I'm really pleased that you're doing this. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what year group was it? Um, I think it was year eights. Jeez, that is a baptism of fire. No, I, like, I like that. It's a really good school. Like the kids were impeccably well behaved there, so it wasn't, you know, a massive risk. Yes. They didn't think there'd be a riot. Um, but yeah. Flipping heck. And what about? Do you remember your first uh, lesson as a fully qualified uh, NQT? Um. Well, not really, because. When I started at my new school, I actually started in June once I'd finished my ah. um and I team taught for a while with um, the teacher that I was replacing, which was such a good opportunity um, because it meant that we split the teaching, I could get ideas from her, I could see how she planned things, which was so useful. Um, and it was something that I didn't get as much of when I was on my PGCA, so I really appreciated that aspect of it. Um, but I do remember I did a cumulative frequency lesson. It's the one that's on my TES, so where we watch a sketch of the um, animals talking on the wild side or something like that. And um, they had to rate it, and then, yeah, it was good fun. Oh, nice. <laughs> sounds, sounds good. Fantastic. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's put you on a downer now by um, thinking about a bad lesson that you've taught. So, again, if talk us through in as much detail as you can without bursting into tears. And <laughs> what I'm interested in is why did it go badly? What did you learn from it? And kind of what what would you do differently if you could turn the clock back? OK, so um, the one where I can think of that sticks in my mind is when I was having an observation and um it was with my bottom sets and I was teaching them to solve two-step equations, which is a bit ambitious anyway, but I have a very growth mindset and, um, and they're an amazing class and I thought, do you know what, they'll, they'll smash this. So um, the day before I taught them, one, oh, the day before, the day before, so two days before, <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I taught them one-step equations and then I'd planned the lesson and then 
um, it was all ready and raring to go. And then I'd had another lesson with them in which I was doing the one-step equations and I actually thought, oh, do you know, I'm not completely confident that they've got this on the one-step equations. Um, and so I thought to myself, maybe I should change it and I should go back. But for some reason, um, I'd already discussed it with my mentor and for some reason I thought, oh, no, I can't change it which was just stupid because, <laughs> you know, you follow your intuition, don't you? And you think, no, you can't try and push the kids on too far. And um, that day I wasn't feeling very well at all either. So I was, I went in and I thought, right, I'm going to teach them two-step equations. So we did the first part, which was them practicing one steps. And uh, it became quite clear <laughs> that they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> I still did two steps anyway. And, um, I mean, credit to like they were incredible they tried so hard and they tried so hard that they were getting it a lot of them were getting it by the end but i really regret forcing them into that situation (laughs) (laughs) and i think you you've hit upon something there is and it's a thing i used to find frustrating and i still do you you can't really get too ahead of yourself in teaching like i remember when i was in my nqt year my my dream was to just to get all my lessons planned for the week on a sunday and then i could just kind of keep on top of things uh, during the week as as and when need be but as you say there if you can you can plan what you think is a perfect sequence of lessons out we're going to do one step for solving equations today two steps tomorrow but if the one step goes wrong all of a sudden your two-step lesson is an absolute waste of time and needs some serious modifications no <laughs> what um so yeah what, what what happened at the end of the lesson everyone survived it did they oh yeah we survived um, <laughs> one way or another um my feedback was not fantastic <laughs> but um i think i mean the kids in my view uh they did show some good progress bless them for trying um but yeah it they did the next lesson we worked some more on the two-step equations and I mean they were a bottom set so you can't judge them too much it's a hard topic for them to be able to get so I was pushing them quite far um, and it did take us quite a few more lessons I think I hadn't really taught two-step equations before oh no I had that's a lie I taught them to another class and they got it really quickly so I thought oh my god that's amazing (laughs) obviously get it too and then it just took that little bit longer but yeah, they were all good with it, and they, they enjoyed the fa- they, the kind of class that appreciates being pushed. Okay. So they were quite happy with it. And you, and you need those experiences, Beth, right? You, you, it's it's a terrible feeling when you just you just know it's going wrong. And often I I find often it's worse with a good class because a bad class, if things are going bad, will just be messing around. But a good class, you can almost see it on the faces that they're trying so hard, but something is just not right. <laughs> and yeah, you you're, you've got a decision to make there, haven't you? Do you plow on regardless, or do we abandon everything and do we go back to, go back to scratch? And it's yeah, it's. It's a tricky one. It's yeah. No, that's that's a good one, that Beth. I like that one. <laughs> um, well, if you've recovered from that, I wonder if we could talk about um, change because I'm interested. It's a massive year, the the NQT year. And we're going to dig into the pressures of it a little bit later on. But mm. I wonder if we could first touch upon how how have you changed as a teacher? Would you say over the course of this year? Um, well, I think I'm definitely more confident. Um, I am much better at handling behaviour. Um, I am faster at planning lessons, which is great. Um, and I'm definitely um, wasting less time on Tez because <laughs> not that I don't like Tez, I absolutely love Tez, but 
I think when I was doing my PGCE, I got sucked into searching for like a worksheet on TES or something like that. And um, I just wouldn't find it. Or it'd take me hours to trawl through because there's so many resources. And you have an idea in your mind of exactly the kind of thing that you want. And sometimes people haven't made that. (laughs) (laughs) You'd sometimes be better off just abandoning and then trying your own. So I think I've whittled it down to about 10 or 15 minutes if if I want to look for something. In fact, no, to be fair, I go through two pages and then I'm like, no, no more. I'll just do I think if I can just interrupt you there, but I think that's a, that's a great rule. I I spoke um, two or three episodes ago to my old uh, my old PGC tutor at Nottingham, and she said that's one of the the biggest things she sees in students how how it's changed over the over the student teachers mm-hmm. is the amount of time they spend actually looking for resources versus planning their own resources out. And mm-hmm. I remember when I started teach when I was in doing my PGC. God, this is depressing. Twelve twelve years ago now, and <laughs> um, Tez was in its it was in its infancy, so. So if there wasn't something around you had to just build it yourself and mm-hmm. it's amazing the growth of tears and blogs and all that kind of stuff that have come with it but the bottom line is as you've as you've said there you've got something in your mind and if you spend half an hour trying to find it that half an hour could have been spent putting it to use and people will say oh you shouldn't reinvent the wheel and all this kind of stuff but I think it's a key part of teaching it's a key part is developing your own resources and adapting them and and coming up with your own stuff and it's searching is often dead time so i think yeah that's that's very and i love that rule the two page the beth lily two page rule i think you could i think that that could go big that i like that and um, i wonder if i could pick up on also what, what you said there about how you you've got better with dealing with behavior could you just talk a little bit about that what what what's changed in that regard would you say and have you picked up on any tips that uh, that have kind of saw this improvement through um, well, in my first placement school, I didn't have to deal with behaviour because it just wasn't a thing, really. Um, in my second placement school, there wasn't a particular behaviour structure. So, in general, it was kind of a, you can tell a kid off, and then you can tell them to go outside, and then you can have a stern word with them, and then let them back in. Telling them to go outside doesn't really work for me because I'm quite small. so I mean I even have year sevens that are already taller than me so me taking them to go and stand outside just doesn't work for me so occasionally the the head of maths on uh, the second in maths will be walking up and down the corridors and then he'd have a yell at some kids but um, there wasn't kind of a do you know like a comments policy or anything that kind of got followed up when they were obviously behaving in so many lessons Um, so I struggled with it during that year um, but at my school that I'm at now, um, it's a really strict behaviour policy. So it's like you've got a verbal warning, then you've got a comment, then you've got a comment, then you've got a comment, and then you're not just out of the room. You're in another class, so the kids never get taken outside. Um, so it's a complete flip side to the school that I was in before. Um, and it just it makes it so much easier to kind of get through and just pick up on something and be like, no, do you know what, you're just starting to misbehave now, so that's going to be a verbal warning kind of thing. Um, which is really nice and then they just get a comment written in the planner so rather than it being I think it was supposed to be electronic but I don't think anyone used it at the previous school so um, and rewards were the same as well there so here I've got my planner or they've got their planners I can stamp them to say that they've done well and I can write in a comment to say that they're annoying me 
<laughs> <laughs> I like this, Beth, and it's it, it's kind of good news and bad news for people listening here. Uh, I think the good news is, and and Bruno already when I interviewed him, he, he touched upon this. Well, in fact, he, he spoke about an hour on on this. That if the routines and the kind of school ethos is the absolute key to behaviour management, because you've got something there that's a structure that the kids are used to. It's consistent across all lessons, and you can just slot into that. Whereas at the previous schools you talked about, there wasn't those routines in place, and it's very very difficult for for a teacher to, to do something in those in those situations um, did you just and again I think it's important that, that you've been through um, experience to school where things weren't in place was there anything that you picked up there that you thought actually that this this is this is a decent technique that I can use if I'm if I'm if I'm in a classroom and, and things aren't going so well and even if I don't have the, these kind of consistent structures in place this is a technique that actually is, is probably going to work quite well in a lot of different situations um there are things but they're not things that I could use at my school so if say they weren't doing enough work I could just keep them back um into over break time to finish it off whereas at my school that's not a thing um so I can see the validity of that so in my school if they've not if they've worked kind of slowly and you think do you know what I'll, I would let you go if you've done five questions but you've only done four so I need you to finish off that last one Um, you can't do that so I suppose I used that quite a lot when I was at the previous school Um, as kind of a once you've done enough work then you can leave Um, but yeah so I can't do that in my new school (laughs) (laughs) fantastic Um, there's been I just want to want to again pick up a little bit more about how things have changed for this year and um, I asked for questions for you on on Twitter last night and there was loads coming in and this this one came in from from Chris Smith um, what what's, would you say has been the single biggest improvement you've made in your teaching over the course of this year? So aside from planning, your actual delivery in lessons, what, what would you say has been the biggest improvement there, Beth? Hmm. Um, I was really nervous about these additional questions. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to like them all. <laughs> so I think my biggest improvement in my teaching is probably... Hmm. I think I was good at asking questions before, um, but I think I'm asking so many more questions as well. So I ask more probing questions. I get more out of the kids whilst I'm talking to them and in the discussion to kind of help them explain it to other people, um, which has made me a lot more confident in the fact that sometimes I know that the kids might not completely understand what I'm saying, but another kid will have understood understood it in a completely different way um and then they can kind of help each other so sometimes I see more validity in saying well how is it that you've got to that answer um and then making sure that it's right (laughs) yeah I I think that's that's such a key thing that because I remember again when I first came into teaching and I, I've, again, I, I've talked about this a couple of times. One of my first lessons was a, a year eight lesson on fractions, and I'll never forget it because I thought somebody had set me up. The, the mistakes the kids were making, I thought, are you are you taking the, the whatever here? Because I, I'd gone into teaching as a as a pretty strong mathematician who, who really enjoyed maths, and I'd always been in top sets and so on. Yeah. And I just could not understand the mistakes kids made. And also, and the bit that you've picked up on there, Beth, is that. 
I thought my way of explaining things was the be-all and end-all, like, because it worked for me, so it's going to work for you lot. But as you say, asking those questions and, and in particular getting kids to explain their way of understanding things, I think is absolutely crucial. So is that something that's just kind of come with experience throughout this year? Um, yeah, I think so. I think it's because I'm not... I think sometimes in your PGCE, because you always you pretty much always have someone there, um, you kind of feel like you can't... I don't know, I felt like I couldn't spend too much time asking them questions and I felt like there's some pressure for the 80-20 thing, which at uni we weren't told to do. Um, credit to the teachers and mentors at Huddersfield because they used to say to us, well, no, if there's a particular lesson that you're doing, it's not always going to fit 80-20 rule. Could you just tell us what this 80-20 rule is? I don't think this has crossed the Pennines into Lancashire this one. Oh, really? before. Yeah, I don't think so. 80% for kids and 20% you. So you're supposed to only talk at them for 20 minutes and they're supposed to spend 80, and, um, oh, tw- not 20 minutes, obviously. Oh, um, <laughs> anyway, so um, they spend 80% of their time actually yes. doing some work and getting on with it. But I think that either that's misunderstood in some areas because um, sometimes you might think that the kids aren't doing any work because you or maybe I misunderstood it because if I'm asking them questions, I am actually getting them to do some work in but in the brains instead of just writing it down. And I think sometimes you feel pressure to make sure that they have got loads of work in the book or they've completed loads of questions or whatever. Whereas once Ed came into my school and I'd been begging to see one of his lessons for a while, um, he took over one of my lessons. And they spent ages talking to them, using the whiteboards, and I don't think they wrote anything down in the time that um, he was talking to them. It wasn't a full lesson, but... um, And that kind of gave me a bit more confidence, and I thought, no, because they've learned a lot during that, and just because it's not written in the books or um, just because they haven't done 100 questions doesn't mean that they haven't learned... Absolutely, flipping out. Yeah, I've never heard of that eighty twenty, but I don't like it immediately. So yeah, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad that's. Uh, yeah, you, you've you've seen the light on that one. That uh, well, and that that leads me into this next thing because NQT year is just a year of being observed left, right, and centre, right? And I know obviously PGC uh, year is too. But what um what what's the process been like for you being observed, Beth? Do you do you, uh, do you uh, teach differently when somebody's watching you and if so how and has 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 your feelings towards being observed kind of changed over the course of the year have you, have you got a bit more used to it um well i actually i got observed a lot in my pgc a year but to be honest i've been observed not very much of my nqt year so i think i've had one per half term um, whereas obviously in PGCE year, you're used to having someone in your lessons all the time, except for right towards the end when you have less. Um, so I think, I don't think I teach differently, but I think I'm still probably guilty of asking less questions because um, pace has been one of my targets. <laughs> so I'm always conscious to be like, no, I need to get some stuff done. And I'm a little bit more... Um, trying to get to the end when I'm being observed still even though when I am being observed I'm good at kind of just switching off the fact that there's a person in the room because at the end of the day there's all of the kids in the room that I need to talk to um whereas I think um 
some people kind of get a bit more panicked about it. Whereas once it's happening to me, I'm kind of like, well, whatever happens, happens. But I do try to reach the end of what I've planned. Whereas um, I think I still would be a bit more flexible if I was teaching it myself and maybe spend a little bit of extra time on certain things. Whereas there's something about writing down your timings on a lesson plan that make you feel a bit more pressure about actually sticking to it. Oh, absolutely. Oh, it's yeah. It, and, and you're absolutely right. And when, when I watch teachers, it's it's the biggest problem because it goes back to what you were talking about, about your, your bad lesson that you taught there. If, if you've budgeted 10 minutes for a recap of solving one-step equations and after 10 minutes they're still clueless, but you've yeah. written down 10 minutes human instinct is just to stop it there and move on with the rest of it and it's yeah very restrictive yeah you're absolutely right there beth and what um what other things have have been said to you during the course of being observed and feedback you you mentioned pace any any other things that have been identified early on that that you've then looked to develop and improve upon um uh it's a good question i haven't prepared for this one (laughs) Um, (laughs) um i can't Pace is definitely one of them. What do they mean by pace there, Beth? Because often it's one of the things that gets banded around a a fair bit. Mm -hmm. What what, what do they mean with with regard to your teaching? Um, Well, it's meant before um, kind of if I'm spending too long on starters. So sometimes when I'm doing a starter, I'll get them to do the questions and then um, I think the particular example was when I'd spent, say, five minutes of them doing the starter from when they get in, and then um, I'd gone round the class to ask them what the answers were um, and ask them to explain a couple of them so that I could definitely see how they were getting those answers. Um, but then that ended up taking quite a long time, so I think it was more of a stop spending so long on your recap because they've already got it and you, and you could have seen that quicker. Um, so move on to what you're supposed to be teaching because then you'll actually get through more content and um, get through to the harder stuff that they're actually going to find difficult rather than them getting to the difficult part near to the end of the lesson and then they're having to say bye (laughs) (laughs) okay and you and that's something that you think you've improved upon yes but it's still something that I need to keep working on but I don't know. I'm in two minds of it because I know I completely understand both aspects of it. But from some sides of it, I feel like I really want to be so confident that they are understanding it. And I think I don't want to rush them because I don't want them to have that feeling of doubt. Yes. Um, and I don't want the next lesson for me to be like, oh, yeah, so you remember when we were doing this and now we're moving on to these parallel lines instead of just finding the equation of lines. And they're like, I don't know how to find the equation of a line in the first place. So why are you asking me to find a parallel line? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a tr- it's a balancing act, isn't it? It's very, very difficult. The, and I think, again, I, people aren't going to like me for saying this, but it's it's almost an easy cop-out when observing somebody to say, oh, the pace suffered there, or you need to you need to improve on your pace and stuff. Because pace can often come at the sacrifice of depth of understanding, and it's very, very difficult to get that balance right. And that kind of leads me on to my next thing, because often when I'm observing or whether or whenever... Um, teachers come to ask me about advice they'll say right they always pick up on me pace and then they always pick up on me uh, lack of differentiation or problem with differentiation and um, as how have you coped with the uh, the issue of differentiation have you, have you got any strat? is that something that's come up in your teaching is it something you think about in your planning and uh, have you developed any strategies for this um well i have 
I do the lemon and herb medium and hot questions, which are differentiated. So um, lemon and herb will generally be taking them back to the basics. So just in kit, so I've got the scenario there for if they haven't understood what they needed to understand beforehand, then they can do that side of things. Um, so like on the one-step equation, on two-step equation lesson, that would be going back to basics of one-step equations to make sure that they could actually do that first. Um, then the medium ones would be kind of like the simple ones and then extra hot, hot and extra hot would be where they have to use a bit more intuition and figure it out for themselves um, from me not giving them examples and seeing if they get it and then af after a point then I would bring the whole class around to there. Um, I think that it is quite hard when you've got, I had a lot of top sets last year um, and sometimes it's hard to differentiate for the really top um, in a way that kind of really brings them on but doesn't take them up into other levels of um, work because the idea of us doing the grade descriptors is that we're getting them to fully, fully understand um, whatever topic it is that we're doing rather than then trying to kind of teach them, say, equations of quadratic lines in graphs instead of straight lines, yes. if that makes sense. Um, so I did find that a bit hard. And if, yeah, that makes perfect sense, Beth. And again, this sounds like a plug, but on the previous episode, I, I interviewed uh, Jamie Frost from uh, Dr. Frost Maths, and he, he teaches at an incredibly high achieving school. And he, he spoke in great detail about this, this problem of differentiation at the top level, because often people think of differentiation of, as making sure kids have got support. And then also, if you've got a high achiever, just make sure they're challenged a little bit. And often that extra challenge comes from exactly as you're saying they're giving them different work that isn't similar to what the rest of the class are doing and, and that often causes problems as you say when it comes to assessment but also just in the general plenary or whatever or the general class feel if, if kids are working on completely different topics and and he makes great use of um uk maths challenge questions and olympiad questions and mentoring questions that can take take a topic such as um, written edition or, or something dead dead basic like I don't know uh, reflections or something like that and just by asking by using one of these UKMT questions or as I say one of the Olympiad questions you can challenge the most able student but while still keeping them on the exact same topic and I, I think I, I really made me reconsider differentiation at the very very top end because I think it's 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 a fine art to get that right and I think you're right to identify that as a that that was a problem yeah absolutely um i was going to ask it as well well in fact yeah let's um let, let's move now if that's all right beth to um to to work-life balance because this is this is a flipping big one this um and i remember like my i thought my pgc year was hard like that was a shock to the system but a flipping nqt year nearly finished me off and um <laughs> i spoke to my my mentor as i mentioned before steph from nottingham and she says that the workload is the single biggest reason why so many people um quit the profession followed by behavior and we've, we've touched upon behavior management early on yeah. so i wonder if you could first start by just talking us through an average week in the life of, a, of an nqt so in terms of and um, by that I mean what time are you getting into school what time are you leaving school and how much work are you doing evenings and weekends and what kind of work is it okay so um in general I'll get to work about 10 to 8 so we start at 25 past 8 I'm not really a morning person so well no I'm fine once I'm 
awake and ready but I wouldn't get up too early um I'd rather rather do my work at the end so I don't really do anything on the morning um aside from kind of psych myself up and get a cup of tea um (laughs) (laughs) if I haven't had that cup of tea (laughs) (laughs) um so actually I stayed at school we finish at half past two I'll generally leave at about six depending on what kind of work I've got to do and how much there is um so that's I suppose three and a half hours of getting back onto it for a while and is is that I mean that's quite a significant amount of time are you spending that in the maths department or are you uh, with other people or are you going off to your own classroom to get a bit of quiet time what does that that three and a half hours look like um so I have my own classroom which is lovely and um so I generally hide out in there I'll go in and talk to some people in the maths office a bit especially if um I'm asking them a question about asking for some advice or if anyone's got any resources or anything um we have a bank of resources within the department that we all share um so I use that um, which means that I don't actually have to have conversations often. <laughs> Markups of tea. But um, in general, I just sit at my computer with my music on and I find it easier to plan my lessons at the computer than I do to plan them at home um, because then I'm using my laptop and I'm more tempted to watch it in front of TV. Yes. Um, and then it takes me about five times longer. I remember during my PGCE year, I was... I didn't plan at school because um, I was an hour away, so um, it took me an additional two hours, whereas, and this is a really important thing about how I've managed to get a better work-life balance now, um, is that my school's only 15, 20 minutes away. Yes. So it's literally cut down my travel time from two hours to 40 minutes over a day. Um, so that's made a massive difference. Um, having my own classroom as well means that I can just get down to it and do it in the classroom, which is much easier than going home and doing it um, and watching it over Game of Thrones because <laughs> year that meant that I was awake till ridiculous times. Like in my PGCE year, I was awake until probably midnight, half past one, doing planning. Flipping egg. it's yeah, and that's a, it's a common it's a, it's a common thing that, and I think I, you've hit upon something key there that you've the one one thing that teaching has a lot of kind of bad things about it, but one thing it does have going for it is that the school day finishes relatively early, and I think that is a golden time to make the most of that time from when that final bell goes to when kind of normal jobs go home. You, you yeah. can you can get a, a significant portion of, of your work done there, and I wonder if I could ask in that time, Beth, are you? planning for the next are you spending that time planning lessons for the next day or are you marking books or what, what are you actually doing in that time and um, so i'll be planning so um generally i try to plan well i plan pretty much a day in advance i'll occasionally plan like two or three in advance if i've got on a bit of a roll um <laughs> so that'll be prepared for it but um yeah so i'm generally planning or making a new resource for something um I will try and mark at school as well. So, um, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I distract myself still too much, though. I don't think it's 100% productive time at all. I think, realistically, it's probably about two-thirds of it is probably actually productive. I think there's probably about a third of it that, um, you know, I don't get so productive on. 
I, I take that during marking. I reckon I'm down to about 15% productive because it is marking. I find absolutely soul destroying. So, what are you when you're marking, Beth? Well, firstly, um, what are you kind of marking obligations in your school? How how does your marking policy work? And how have you how do you find marking? Like, well, how psychologically how do you get through the the pain of it? <laughs> um, so our marking is. Um, not as insane as a lot of people's is we have to have a key piece of um oh what's the terms um thoroughly oh i can't remember i'll do that anyway um a properly marked piece of work basically every two weeks for our key stage four students um which means that in the kind of interpretation of that is, is if I give them one of these grade descriptive tests or if I give them um, a homework or something like that, I can go through and mark it and then I have to give them a strength and a target um, for that particular piece of work or like a couple of strengths or targets. So um, we, our department had a talk from Claire Gadsby about dot marking at some point um she spoke to the entire school about it but i wasn't there at that point um but the department properly took it on so basically um you color code your strengths and targets so that you're not repeating them constantly um you assign them a particular color and then say pink is a particular target and loads of kids have got that you just do a pink dot and then they use the purple pens to fill it in um when they get the work uh, ah nice so you essentially kind of write on a separate document or a PowerPoint or whatever these these particular strengths or targets or whatever and then that gets projected up does it in the lesson with the colour code and then yes. the kids know which one it is copy it down into the books and, and do it from there yeah so we have feedback lessons for that so um, we would give them back the books and initially you'd say to them right what do you think these different colours mean um, so that they can try and think with their work and the person next to them like oh what question do you think this um, refers to so what kind of a topic is that what are we trying to actually achieve um, and then after that then we'll put it on the board after they've decided if they're correct or not um, and then they'll have particular kinds of questions um, be aimed towards achieving those targets. And then do you have to remark that work? Um, so we recheck over it yeah um, and they can check through it too. Got it. Fantastic. And I wonder, could you put a figure on it, Beth? How, how long? How, how long a week do you reckon you spend marking? Well, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> at the moment, I feel like it's probably about an hour or so. I, I don't think I take that long marking. I'm quite quick. An hour a week for all classes. Yeah, I think so. Hey, that's flipping. This, this dot marking could go big after uh, people have heard that. That is. Oh, well, no, it's incredible. That's okay. I like. I like that. And mm. well, what about? So you're in school, um, half two till six. Are you taking any work home with you um, regularly on an evening after that? Um. Well, I was before. Um. In general, most of my work came from Sundays because on a Friday. I would not be at my most productive self. And I generally walk around and tidy my room and reorganise myself um, for, you know, just to make it look more... Well, I have this. I have a desk behind my own desk and I put a lot of rubbish on there or worksheets that I've used. And I'm a bit of a hoarder, so I leave a lot of stuff on there, so I have to clear that out on a Friday. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, but 
so then I end up putting things off and not really planning for Monday. So I'd plan generally for Monday on Sunday, which sucked last year because I had five lessons on a Monday and it wasn't the time to do it on a Sunday. <laughs> but what I like about that is, is, is Sunday essentially just a normal planning day? Is what you do on Sunday what, what you would do Tuesday night for Wednesday, if that makes sense? Uh, well, yeah, but it takes me a lot longer because I'm watching TV. I know right. these realizations, but I don't put them into practice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, I like this. And do you have any? Um, do you have any golden rules like you're not going to work beyond nine o'clock, or you're going to take Saturdays off, or you you're going to get your work done on Sunday Sunday mornings? Do you have anything that anything any kind of targets or or limit constraints that you set yourself? I've tried to do those before, but they didn't work out to my best ability. In general, I won't do any work on a Saturday. Saturday is my day, and yep. Friday night after school. Once I've left school, that's it. I'm not doing anything Friday night. But that's um, not necessarily just a rule, but more of a I can't be bothered to do yes. it once I've got home. And although I do bring things home and intend to do more um work at home quite often i should really just leave it at school because i don't really do anything um once i am at home quite often so but then it's just in the back of my mind yes. so i should just leave it at school really um, I, think, I think that's that's a big one that beth and um, what's well, two things there really one is that i think yeah like i'm i'm the same if i've got work to do at home it, it is going to take at least twice as long than if i if i did it at school or if i try and do it in the lounge as opposed to my office then straight away you can triple the amount of time it's going to take and i think as well that psychological factor that we always laugh about this in the office that we we walk home with books and yeah. we put them in the boot of our car and they're not even coming out the boot of the car like it's literally a waste <laughs> of time taking a moment and everyone knows it but we just take it to feel a little bit less guilty in that 15 seconds walk home to the car yes. but then when you're in the house it's just in the back it's like when I close my eyes I can see the boot of my car with these flipping books <laughs> in them and it just hangs over you like a like a, a deadly weight yeah you, you're absolutely right there <laughs> um I wonder do you um do you find the workload too much is it is it a daunting workload or is it is it manageable would you and by that I mean is it sustainable Sometimes I get more stressed out than others. I think last year I was really lucky because I had um, a couple of classes that were at similar abilities so that actually I could kind of double plan at once so that I could mix their lessons, which made my life a lot easier. Whereas I think if that hadn't been the case, I definitely would have felt a lot more stressed. And I think the things that I struggled the most with, so the things that take me the most time, are not the low ability ones. It's back to the higher ability ones again. Um, So, for example, my 11 set ones that I've got this year, which I'm super excited about, I am finding those quite hard to plan for because um, trying to find problem-solving things is actually the thing that I'm struggling with at the most. So I think... um, I think... You can get a work-life balance. I think I've spent a lot less time on Twitter because um, in order to achieve that this year. (laughs) Because because although it's not strictly work, I end up thinking about things too much and I think I just need to switch off a bit. So I'll go on it a lot less frequently now, whereas I used to live on it a bit in PGC a year. Again, it's it's another thing that's that's grown rapidly over the last what, four to five years, and it's mm-hmm. it can be the best thing um, 
to help you with your teaching, but the wor- it can be the worst thing as well. An hour can just disappear in the blink of an eye. You know, <laughs> yeah. on there. Um, and I wonder, you mentioned there about um, needing to switch off and stuff, and I think that's that's so so important. What um, how, how do you do that? Because um, I'm assuming you think about work quite a bit when you when you're outside of work. It's the the kind of job that that lends itself to that. But if that's the case, how how do you switch off, Beth? Um, well. I switch off by doing stupid mundane things. So I get a bit addicted to games. So <laughs> right. playing like Candy Crush and things, uh, which is great. Um, or I'll kind of watch TV sometimes. Sometimes when I get in, I just need to sit down on the sofa and just chill. So I'll put some TV on that can kind of take my concentration a bit. Um, so that I can kind of just chill out and I, sometimes I kind of process the day in that time as well um, and then if there is anything then um, then yeah I'll think I'll kind of think that one through and then put it to one side I think I feel a lot more switched off when I can leave school and think right I'm completely ready for tomorrow I know that I've got all that done um, so I can I cannot think about it for a while. It's if I've got a list of things yes. I know that I need to do that are stacking up, um, such as the other day I was applying for a challenge for the for STEM club that I want to set up next year, and it was in the back of my mind that I needed to write this um, 500 words. It was so simple, but it was bothering me for quite a long time, and I wish I'd just got on with it as soon. <laughs> I think uh, yeah and I think you're right and that that it is a nice feeling if you've got work done at school that drive home's a hell of a lot nicer knowing that you yeah. don't have stuff to do that evening but it's yeah. uh, it's yeah. tough it's tough though right it's tough sometimes forcing yourself to stay in school when sometimes you just want to get home and yeah, it's when it's nice outside yeah it's and can I ask as well and maybe this is just me but because mm-hmm. I, I used to I used to have that rule of not working on a Saturday as well but yeah. I'd always find flipping Sunday's work just in in the back of my mind but have you managed to have you managed to kind of cut that out are, are Saturdays just your your free day yeah I don't touch my work on a Saturday I'm pretty good at that I think I'm too selfish or maybe I'm just sleeping too much I do sleep quite a lot on Saturday <laughs> I keep myself quite busy so I'll I'll often be going out or something on a Saturday so I'll, I won't actually be able to touch my schoolwork ah nice good technique I like it well I wonder if we can now speak for a bit about actually being an NQT and I wanted to start by asking you Beth what what surprised you most about this this year is there anything that you weren't expecting I didn't expect it to go so quickly I really didn't. It's it's flown by. Um, I think I was actually quite surprised with how well I coped because so many people have said, oh, my God, you thought PGCE was bad and QT is even <laughs> worse. Um, my school has a 30-lesson week, so I've been teaching um, 22 lessons at the end of it. I was teaching 21 before um, with three interventions and I thought I would really struggle with that and having um, 50 minute lessons instead of an hour but actually um, I haven't and I I genuinely thought because you don't teach nearly as many lessons as that obviously on your PGCE and I thought oh my god I'm going to die doing that many lessons Um, but actually I didn't find it that much more difficult. I think if you sit and panic about it, I think it takes so much extra time anyway. So I think I just kind of cracked on and thought, right, I've just got to do it. So they've got to be ready. Um, so I think it surprised me how it, I didn't find it harder. 
I actually found it easier. Not it wasn't hard work, but I just found it better, I think. That's it's, it's refreshing to hear that, Beth. And I think just from speaking to you here, two things spring to mind here. One is that you've got well-established routines in terms of, of your work. So this idea of getting those three and a half hours done four nights a week or whatever in school, I think makes a massive, massive difference. And again, I know I was guilty of, as I said, coming home, taking a couple of hours off. And then that's when the clock's ticking to like seven o'clock. And if you try and work from seven till ten you'll probably get as much done as if you worked from half two to half three and it's and it's infinitely more painful as well so i think <laughs> that absolutely crucial and the other thing i think that's 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 helped from what i've picked up on is your planning process seems to have become a lot more kind of streamlined and, and focused and i wonder if i could just 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 a couple of things i wanted to ask you about that actually when, when you are um is, I'll, I, we, you mentioned before you kind of two-page rule on tes which i think thinks an excellent <laughs> one when you come to get your stuff for your your chill your chilies and your, your lemon and herb and so on where are you getting those questions from are you, are you coming up with those yourself or do you have like a, a bank of them available what what's your technique there um it depends what i'm doing but in general i'll kind of end up making them up myself because i just i mean sometimes i'll look i know that everyone bashes 10 ticks but sometimes i will mm. look at 10 ticks and literally take the questions from there either typing them out myself so that they make more sense because it's because sometimes when you um you cut it and then put it onto your slide. It goes fuzzy and it's really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll sometimes rewrite them. But um, if it's something like um, equations or whatever, then I'll generally make those up myself because they're not hard to make, are they? But um, if it's more uh, questions where... I think it's the higher ability questions that I'll generally steal from somewhere else. That's, you know, borrow. Um, <laughs> so, like, say if I was doing volume of, like, complex shapes, I'd probably rather get a picture of a complex shape off the internet or something along those lines um, to extend than um, the lower ability. I kind of just draw my own pictures. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> and for the um i know it's kind of a bit out of sync because we're not, we're not really on the planning bit but just just whilst we're here what what about the um the actual worksheets and stuff that you give your kids well, where are you going to get those from or, or the questions that they themselves um work through so it's those that i get from tez i don't really use tez for um presentations the only time i will use Tez for um, a presentation really is if I haven't taught anything at all and I want some ideas of how to approach it or um, if it's equations of lines because they're more difficult to draw. <laughs> got, it. got it. And I think you're right and I wish this this would be my plea to, to NQTs or trainee teachers or any teachers listening is that that is how TES sh should be used to find something as which then forms a basis of your lesson not your actual lesson itself I think that's yeah. that's absolutely right Beth and um, I wonder if I can ask you um what have been the main differences between your PGC year and your NQT year would you say the main differences hmm. um I really enjoyed having my own classes for the full time um, so for from September all the way up to now, um, I really enjoyed having those because I felt a bit more ownership. You can see even more progression. Um, and I like the long-term aspect of it. I actually quite resented losing some of them this time around because 
I kept some of them, but um, <laughs> so you have to lose some. Um, so yeah, I was a bit sad to see some of them go because it's nice to see that progression all the way through. And um, so from some of my sets when they moved up, that feeling of being like, oh yes, well done. Um, <laughs> I think that's kind of um, nice that you get that from your NQT year. Um, you feel a bit more responsibility, I think, whereas in your PGCE year, you kind of know that um, you've been trusted with it to an, to a certain level and then you know that you've kind of got that back up. But I've enjoyed the freedom of being able to teach lessons completely in my own way and just know that, do you know what, no one's going to question me on this because no one else is in my room. So yes. it's quite past and um, fair enough. But actually... Um, I'm quite happy just doing my own thing and I think that's what's made the biggest difference this year being able to do my own thing although having said that I did used to always close my door so I've had my door closed I don't know why it's just that psychological thing of being like oh yeah I'm just going to leave my door closed because um, just in case someone walks <laughs> open the door whereas um, in the past month I reckon I've been leaving it open so Partly because of the heat, but <laughs> also because I think I'm just getting that bit more confident as well and I'm a bit less, you know, shy. I don't mind if someone walks past. Oh, that's nice. That's, that's, that's really nice to hear. And I, I think the, the key thing there is, is the liberation of being an NQT as opposed yeah. to a PGC student. They're your class. You're in control of them. You're, you're in charge of their destiny. They, they form that relationship and that bond with you and you, that you're going to be with them for at least a year I think yeah that, absolutely right um, I wonder if you could just because um, it's I remember from my NQT year and in fact this is true of every year it's a bit of an emotional um, roller coaster ride so I wonder if we could just kind of pick up on the highs and lows of that and if you don't mind Beth first if you could just tell me about a time where you thought yeah I absolutely love this job there's been so many moments. Um, <laughs> that's not sarcasm at all. Just sometimes I come really sarcastic. Um, so, I mean, the obvious one to point out would be going to France um, a couple of weeks ago with the Year Sevens, which was just just a fantastic week. It was actually amazing. I had the best oh, the best time. Um, <laughs> but obviously, that's a massive reward. Um, so, actually, do you know? I think it quite often, genuinely, I, I think. Um, probably at least once or twice a week I come home thinking yeah I really love my job um, so in general it happens like when kids say thank you at the end of a lesson so yeah. sweet um, it's a good highlight um, if your class move up a set oh my god <laughs> some of my kids moved up a set from the bottom set last year and I was like oh my god so proud um, or if they've done a test and they've done better than you expected but um, just in general like when they do really well and you think oh you really achieved in this lesson um, you can really see that they've learned something that's a really good moment but also when they tell me about um, things that they do outside of school because our day is quite quick and they obviously have six lessons a day and we have 50 minute lessons um, things are quite quick and they're very focused um, so sometimes I don't get to hear as much about you know what they do out of school so when I hear about things like they, um, one of my kids the other day was telling me that he boxes and he competes um, other kids that skate or the kids that are in the rugby academy and netball academy and I really like hearing about like all the things that they do and then I feel proud of them and, <laughs> and then I think oh it's such a good job 
Oh, that is, um, yeah, that that is absolutely, <laughs> you're absolutely spot on, Beth. It's um, one of our our head teacher just just the other day was saying this in one of the one of the briefings that, um, and it's an obvious thing to say, but I think I certainly needed reminding of it that we are one of the most important and influential people in in these kids' lives and stuff, and especially kids who come from you know broken homes or or, or struggling stuff that they. they they need to tell people about what they're doing and it, it makes such a difference when you t- to a kid when you take an active interest and you're genuinely interested in what they're doing and and it's it's good for both parties and it's it's good for when you teach them again and it's just and again this is I'm, I'm almost jealous of you because the the best the best thing is when you've taught a kid for four or five years that there's nothing better than when they get their results or when they you see them in sixth form or some something like that and you've been part of their journey all the way through and it's that's something that just keeps getting better and better and better as a teacher because you've taught more and more and more kids and you get to kind of catch up with them in, in different stages of their life so i'm very jealous of you in this young, early stage of your career Beth, but you've got all you've all that to look forward to um well let's let's again let's depress everybody again now but i wonder if you could <laughs> tell us about a time where you, you didn't like your job so much um so sometimes i don't get to finish at six o'clock um so if i'm absolutely swamped with work and i think oh my god i've got these tests to mark because they take a long time um uh, and i've got all these lessons to plan and i've got this extra thing to do and then i want to go out then that upsets me um <laughs> because uh, sometimes then think, oh, do you know, nine to five wasn't so bad sometimes. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I wouldn't swap it, but there's only been a couple of occasions where I thought, oh, God, I just really want to be able to go out and enjoy myself. But um, also, if I'm ill and, you know, when you've just got to drag yourself in, yes. there's no alternative. Yes. And I think, or one time I wasn't being very well when I'd woken up in the morning and um obviously I still had to plan for my lessons but you've already planned your lessons but your lesson isn't something that somebody could yes. just pick up so then you've got to trawl through and fa- trawl through tests <laughs> more than two pages <laughs> <laughs> and find something and I know that there was a time this year where I, I was just the first time I've been sick on NQT um and I found it really really hard and um so yeah I didn't I didn't like it that day and especially when I'd because then obviously you've planned that day in the morning and then you're still recovering and then later on when all you want to do is go back to bed because you spent all day in bed you have to get yourself up and plan for the next day yes Um, It, it sucks Oh, it does. There's, and again, this—I don't want this to, to turn into a moaning session. But you, you're right. You're right there. There's no other job like it. I don't think. Like I often say, say this to my wife. Like whenever, when I'm feeling ill, it's better just to go in. It's less hassle and less work just to turn up and go in there. Because if I wake up on death's door, mm. I've got to then get up, set five lessons of cover work or whatever. And as you say, the, setting cover work is a flipping fine art in itself. Because forget anything you've planned for that. That lesson that's an absolute waste of time forget your kind of blank powerpoints which are ideal for actually in lessons they suddenly become completely redundant so yeah i'd i'd always rather turn up as 
as I say, as close to death as, as legally <laughs> is allowed, just so I can be there in the lesson because it's less hassle than, than those kind of hour and a half where you've got to try and come up with work and then face the wrath of the cover supervisor or whoever's <laughs> cover your lesson the, the next day. So, yeah, I'm with you on that one, Beth. That, that is a low point. Those, uh, <laughs> yeah, being ill as a teacher it isn't nice. Yeah. Um, I wonder if I could ask you now just about support and this this comes as a result of a couple of questions that have come in for you over Twitter mm-hmm. and so we've got one from uh, JK underscore MD and then another from better Maths, and they're both around the similar theme of um, mentors yeah. so um, what would you say the most important qualities are in a mentor and, and how, how have mentors helped you specifically over either your PGC year or, or your NQT year? Um, so I think that the best thing about my mentors has been the willingness to be supportive, just, you know, actually help you out. So if they can see that you are struggling, um, if they see that you're late, they give you that encouragement and they're like, go home, the lesson will happen tomorrow. Um, so you know, just plan to the minimum if you have to, but if you're still here at eight o'clock, then you need to be leaving kind of thing. Um, and just that kind of reinforces you and thinks, yeah, do you know what? This is a bit silly at this point. I, I shouldn't still be here. I have got stuff planned, but I'm trying to run before I can walk sometimes. Um, so I think mentors understanding and remembering what it was like. Yes. Because it's so easy to just be like, oh, we'll just bang together a worksheet. And you're like, yeah, but I've never had to set up a worksheet. <laughs> do you know when you've got that and it's so easy to just say, oh, yeah, you just need to do that. But for a trainee or an NQT, it's not that easy, really. Um, so I think someone that understands and can remember how things were uh, for them. Um, and then also helping you to plan things. I think someone who's willing to let you observe them a lot um, with that class or with a similar class when you're in your NQT year is really useful. Um, and then even when they offer to kind of like help you to plan things that are then together to see, because like when I had the June time, I was seeing how someone else planned and that helped me because you're not only then a part of the lesson aspect, but seeing what goes into planning their lessons is really useful too. Fantastic. And is, is um, being a mentor something you'd like to do yourself? Oh, God, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> because, do you know, I just feel like in order to be a mentor, you'd have to kind of be like the perfect teacher. So, like, recently they've had um, some training opportunities so where you can train to be um what's a ddl so a deputy director of learning who is a mentor to basically all of the other teachers in the school and um i thought well i like the idea of that but i'm not all that up on my theories because there's so many theories there's books that could literally come out of your ears the list would wrap around the world but (laughs) um obviously it's not possible to read all those and this year i haven't really done much reading at all which i think has helped me to get my work-life balance um so i think I'd want to, if I was going to do something like that, I'd definitely need a couple more years under my belt where I securely say, if you come and watch my lesson, I can show you this. Whereas um, I think I'd find it hard to pick at other people's lessons, remembering how hard it is to plan those lessons when you are at that point. Um, So, yeah, I think because I know that mentors have to find a really fine balance between 
yeah, being really supportive and saying, yeah, I understand it's really hard. And also saying, well, actually, though, um, you do need to be able to fit in these particular things in each lesson. Okay, well, we'll talk, we'll talk about your future aspirations just at the end of it, but I, I would certainly would not rule out you being a mentor, Beth. I think you'd be, I think you'd be excellent at it. So definitely have that, have that on your, <laughs> on your radar. <laughs> um, couple more sections. The first one is a very specific one to, to you. This I always like to, uh, kind of get into my guests' interests. And, um, I was very fortunate enough. One of the first times I met you was at, um, a session in Huddersfield where the legend that's Don, what is Don Stewart was, was talking. And I was, I was fortunate enough to, to do a little session myself. And then you were on after us doing um, about the history of maths. So I just wonder if you could just tell us about this little obsession you've got with with the history of maths and and ancient Greeks in particular. And and what is it that kind of hooks you in about them? Okay, so um, quite an act to follow. I mean, that presentation, I was so scared. When Ed emailed me about it, I was like, after Don Stewart and Craig Barton. What? <laughs> I'm not sure I can. But um, he convinced me that he was going to have other NQTs doing it, so that was not true. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I really like the ancient Greeks quite a lot. Um, I like, I've always loved classics and the ancient cultures. So when I was in primary school, I can remember having a massive obsession with the Romans in particular because you learn a lot about the Romans when you're um, at that age and the ancient Egyptians. And um, so I've always found just general ancient cultures really interesting. Um, I think that's because I can almost... I can see how long it's been since those ancient civilizations and just how far we've come because we look at the Middle Ages and it seems like the Stone Age compared to the ancient civilizations. It seems like we went backwards for a while and I think that's one of the things that intrigues me, um, especially with the Greeks. So um, when I went to uni, I genuinely considered doing classics, but... um, I hadn't done history A-level, and that's because it wasn't classic-based. I didn't like history um, medieval because they bored me. (laughs) (laughs) But there you go. So um, I did a history of maths module, which um, Kevin Houston taught. And um, I mentioned his name because I've recently seen him at Maths Jam. Um, (laughs) I I absolutely adored it. I switched off a little bit when it came to statistics because I've never been into that. But um, we did an aspect on the Greeks. And um, it just completely opened my eyes to all these incredible things that they used to do. So um, my favourite fact is uh, that actually everybody thinks that we thought that the Earth was at the centre of the universe and that the Earth was flat and all this until like the medieval ages. But that or even early 19th century, 20th century, 1900s. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> oh, yeah. But actually, they didn't. So some ancient Greeks said, you know, the sun's at the centre of the universe and they were able to calculate things like um, Aristophanes worked out the actual distance around the Earth and, well, you couldn't do that if it was flat. So there's a lot of understanding there and um, they found distances to the moon and to the sun. But also the thing that really makes me like them is that it's actually a simple maths that they've done it with. So... Rather than it being like, oh, yeah, well, we were using the computer and then we figured out this. They're just using observations and similar triangles, right angle triangles. And I think it's really incredible what they managed to achieve with that, really. 
flipping heck. You know, you've, you've hooked me in a bit there. And uh, d- does this find its way into your lessons? Yes, it does. So um, often, so I was teaching um, similar triangles to my year nine class when I decided to be like, oh, well, Talas, he managed to find the height of a pyramid by looking at the shadow that he'd created on the ground and then the shadow that the pyramid had created on the ground. And um, I've used... Uh, how Aristophanes worked out the distance around the Earth and told them to work out the arc. Well, they've used the... um, No, they haven't. They've developed the arc length formula whilst they've been trying to work that out. So I give them some key bits of information about the calculation that he made, um, basically just the angle that he was at and um, the distance from the two points he was looking at. And from there, they were able to work out the distance around the Earth and then also use that to work out our cleanse. So it's quite cool. Oh, nice. And I'll put a link on, um, in the show notes to uh, a document that you've shared on, mm-hmm. on Taz, which is uh, absolutely superb. So listeners, if you want to know more about that, then click the link and uh, <laughs> download that for free. And it'll be on yeah. page one of Taz. You won't need to go uh, break the two page rule to find that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, if we can just move, we're heading towards the end now. And I just want to want to talk just before I ask you about y- your future. Um, and I think I, I know the answer to this, but just to check if, if you could go back in time. Beth, would you still choose to be a teacher? Yes, I was. That's good. <laughs> Always good to know. Well, what about uh, if looking to the next five years, what, what, how would you like your career to develop in an ideal world? Um, so I really like the pastoral side of school. So um, I really like the idea of being ahead of year because uh, even back to when I was applying for my PGCE, I was saying about how how you said earlier actually about how we are sometimes the most important person in the kid's life and it's so important that we can get to know them and but also we're looking out for them and making sure that they are safe because um you know as much as we'd like to think that kids were always safe they're not and um I think it's really important to remember that side of things and it always sucks me in so I like to make sure that um I can be on that side of things and talk to the kids about how they're doing. Um, so on that aspect of things, I'm training up as a kind of in the pastoral side of things next year, which is exciting. Fantastic, Bev. And if I can ask you, and I don't know if this is going to come out right, but I'll, I'll just go for it anyway. <laughs> um, I often find when... Um... When teachers move to, say, become heads of maths or take responsibilities in, in the department, it kind of um, means that their practice in the classroom is no longer their, their top priority. And I, mm-hmm. I, I think it's kind of the same in, in pastoral. And I know we've got teachers at our school who are math teachers who've taken on pastoral responsibilities. And all of a sudden, when they've set aside some time for planning a lesson, next thing there'll be some pastoral emergency that they need to go to. And a lot of their time's eaten up with that. So... How do you think, and maybe it's an impossible question to, to ask, but how do you think you'll kind of balance balance that extra responsibility with your classroom teaching? I think that's a really good question. I think um, part of the reason I wouldn't be ahead of year now is um, because I haven't got a bank of resources behind me that would yes. you know, carry me through. I think that it's really important to kind of know that when you are planning something at the moment, that you are planning it so that, you will be able to reuse it. So that's something that I've found difficult from my PGCE year because um, some of the lessons that I taught were for a different mentor and he didn't like necessarily the way that I taught. So that meant that 
um, I changed my way of teaching to suit those needs and then it means that I don't really use those resources then. Um, so it's meant that I've had to collect some more and I found that a bit more difficult. So I think having um, more behind me would definitely help um, to lift my time commitments a little bit more. But I know that heads of year do get a little bit less time on the timetable for teaching, which I suppose is there to um, replace the time that you might lose. Um, no, good answer that. And I think, again, you've hit the nail on the head there, Beth. It's it's about having that experience and that bank of resources so that if something's happened and you're about to walk into a classroom and you have had no time to prepare, you can at least deliver something because you've taught it before and there's something in the back of your head or on, in your file system somewhere. And, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I often worry sometimes about teachers who very early on in the career crave extra responsibilities or go off I know of one teacher who's a, a, a second in department in their NQT year and so on and I just think you've got to get your teaching sorted first you've got to get your, your teaching your experience your bank resources the rest of it can come it's a bloody long career as, as a teacher so yeah yeah I think you're absolutely right get that experience get that bank resources and then go wherever you want to from yeah, that definitely. fantastic well um, I just want to turn to the penultimate uh, section which is about advice so first question for you Beth what do you wish you'd known when you first started teaching that perhaps you know now um that it gets easier oh nice <laughs> right at the end of the tunnel but um uh, how to make cool resources also <laughs> what um well just on that what's um what would you say one of your favorite resources is that you've made is there any that particularly spring to mind um I really like making code breakers um because when I do that, I don't have to remember all the numerical answers. I can just remember the word it's going to spell out. Ah, nice. Okay, it's good. It's easier. I like that. <laughs> Fantastic. And I guess on a on a similar vein to that, what advice do you have for any either NQTs or student teachers who may be listening to this podcast? Um, I would say back to the test thing. Don't waste your time on it. If don't spend your life searching through tests. Um, have a rule. A two-page rule. Um, <laughs> don't try to run before you can walk. Don't try and make all singing, all dancing PowerPoint presentations until you can teach whatever it is that you're teaching. Worry about that later. Um, I think sometimes it can be really easy to kind of distract yourself and try and make something really, really, really amazing when it's the key things that you need to focus on first, like actually getting your explanation across. That's very good advice. That is excellent advice. And and finally, Beth, what would you include on a PGCE or teacher training course that perhaps wasn't on your course? Um, I feel like a day of making really well thought out resources that um are kind of fun and engaging, such as like mysteries or code breakers or mazes or mosaics, just um to mix it up a bit, um and learning to make really kind of in-depth resources because I think that's something that I could work on you know like finding something that reaches the high ability so um, things like forming and solving equations from say polygons uh, things that can kind of stretch and give you a bit of an extension learning how to make those a bit more um, but with a problem solving focus because obviously that's so much more important and I know that the problem solving aspect is something that everybody is kind of struggling on a bit at the moment to find all those resources for. 
I think you, that's a, that's an excellent idea. Uh, and I, again, I think the reason that that isn't a regular part of PGCs is because of the wealth of resources that are out there. But yeah. as as we spoke about before, it's a fundamental part of being a teacher is being able to design something yourself. Because it's only when you design it yourself that you can think through the questions that you're going to ask surrounding it, the pedagogy and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, if any PGC mentors are listening, get that in there. A little uh, resource resource designing day. I like it. Fantastic, Beth. Well, we've come to the time where it's your time for your big three. So what three websites or pages would you uh, recommend our listeners check out? Okay, so um, number one is Dom Stewart. Sometimes some people have not heard of him. I know, he's criminal. <laughs> I, I'm not friends with those people. It's absolutely <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> no, absolutely. I, I was using some of his stuff today. Like, it's just the way that he asks questions. So actually, he's really good for those kinds of questions that I was saying, the really well thought out kind of questions. He's got the, a lot of them. Um, so yeah, look, maybe even Don Stewart should do se- sessions on making those kinds of resources i think so i i think you're absolutely right and it's again like i sound like a broken record here but i've been <laughs> i've been trying to spread the word for don stewart for about the last the last three or four years and it's not just the quantity it's the quality of the stuff it keeps getting better and better and if listeners haven't checked out his recent series on um generalizing from gcse questions that's some of the best things i've ever seen where he just takes a, a gcse question a bog standard one mm-hmm. and before you know it it's developed into a rich activity where students are getting practice but then also generalizing and i was fortunate enough to um, do a talk a couple couple of weeks ago I'm trying to think where the flipping heck it was now o- oxford <laughs> it was and he was it was him and will emney on the bill and i felt very very starstruck a- around both of them and mm-hmm. don said that when he designs a resource he always thinks how can this lead to a generalization and that's his main thing and that's the beauty of it because he gets practice really well thought through practice of fundamental skills but always with this there's always something else going on there that and that's where you can stretch your highest achievers because everyone can do the practice the fundamental skills but then those high achievers and everybody has this opportunity can really start to spot that generalization and that's where the real depth comes to and uh, yeah uh, if every single uh, guest on my podcast put Don Stewart as number one that would not be a bad thing at all so yeah (laughs) excellent choice what about number two Beth Um, so number two I'd probably say um, Tez although I know that everybody knows about Tez but being able to search everything and just having such a wealth of things I think it's really important because there's such a variety and so many other teachers that are contributing to that that it would be silly not to mention it I think. I, th- I think you're right and obviously I have a little bit of bias here as I'm the Tes Maths advisor but <laughs> you, you, you've hit the, there is almost too much stuff on there and I spend the vast majority of my time trying to make sure the good stuff filters to the top whether it's through resource of the week or newsletters and stuff And yeah. I th- but the bottom line is there is there is everything is on there like you everything has been made everything can be found if you have the time or you kind of get lucky and find and find it and it's not just powerpoints or worksheets there's rich activities investigations all sorts on there so yeah i think you're absolutely right and yeah, again, if I was to give anybody a little bit of advice, and I'll probably get sacked for saying this, so I'm just going to say it anyway. Um, I would never use the test search facility, although it has got a little bit better, but it's still pretty bad. Um, I always just put test maths into Google, and then the specific thing of what I want, whether it be STEM, uh, STEM and leaf card sort or whatever, test maths, STEM and leaf card sort into Google, that will find it far more effectively than uh, than going through test any day of the week. So yeah, excellent choice there on on test. What about number three, Beth? All right, number three is probably your 
diagnostic questions. Oh, now we're talking. Um, good, I'm, I'm liking this. This is good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that you can pinpoint those particular things. And there's some questions on there that, I mean, it automatically brings you up with questions, which is obviously just useful because you need to have questions. But um, there's different ways of asking them and it opens your eyes up to the different misconceptions that they do have, So, um, which, as I mentioned before, I'm not always spot on at noticing. Well, I think you're right. And again, this this isn't a plug because there's, there's nothing to sell. But I, what, what I will say is the, the, one of the main reasons I, I designed it was because when I first came into teaching, I did not know the kind of mistakes kids would make. It was an absolute eye-opener to me. And, I, and what I've found over the last couple of years... And I think um, you were there when I, I gave the talk at, at the most recent maths conf is that the mistakes teachers think kids are going to make are not often the mistakes that kids actually make themselves and the misconceptions that kids hold are often a surprise to teachers and it's only through asking these type of questions and as you said asking the middle of the lesson start lesson or whatever that these misconceptions really come to light so yeah no, th- thanks for giving us a shout out on, on that that's going to cost me a fortune <laughs> this interview but no that, that's super uh, that's fantastic and what I'll also put um, a link uh, in the show notes to your Twitter handle uh, because I know you're a very active Twitter user although you've, you've mentioned you, you're trying to cut down a little bit and also <laughs> to the uh, the blog that you've uh, the blog that you've got going as well and mm-hmm. an excellent write up of your uh, your history of maths. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which is super well Beth I've, I've kept you far too long here but thanks so much for uh, for sharing your experiences uh, of an NQT I think it's it's always useful to to hear fresh honest people talking about the highs and lows but also coming out of it saying that they're so glad that they did the job that they love interacting with the kids and so on and I think yeah you've a, a very bright future ahead of you Beth so thanks so much for, for taking the time to join me today Thank you for asking. It was a real honour. <laughs> Cheers, mate. So, there you have it. There was my interview with NQT Beth Lilly. I really hope you enjoyed that and found it as interesting and useful as I did. One thing that I found particularly refreshing was Beth's positivity and enthusiasm. And I think that's been a trait shared by all my guests that have been on the last, what is it now, 14 episodes of of the Mr. Barton Maths podcast. That despite the fact that maths teaching is a flipping hard job and it's painful at times, they've all had a passion and enthusiasm for the job and been able to convey the positivity and the really good things about the job and I think it's so great that that Beth's onto that so early on in her career because she'll need it when times get tough um, and for my takeaway this time I only want to do a quick one and I just want to relate uh, relate it back to the conversation I had with Stephanie Sullivan who was the uh, PGC math tutor from Nottingham who interviewed a few le- a few episodes ago and she outlined something that we all know that the uh, the single biggest reason that math teachers quit their profession in their droves early on in the career is the workload and there's no doubt that it's a flipping nightmare but I thought what was really nice about what Beth was saying and really important was that she's got into some routines this regular idea that her school finishes at half two and she doesn't go home even though it's the most tempting thing in the world she just stays on stays in school till six o'clock and that means more often than not she can then leave home without any work to do in the evening and also the fact that she sees her weekend as just essentially another kind of work day that the work she does on 
on Sunday, it will just get her through to Monday and then Monday night will get her through to Tuesday and so on. And I think I've seen a lot of NQTs over the years, and I know I was certainly guilty of this, that they either leave all their work to the weekend um, and that just makes the weekend a flipping nightmare, or they finish their school day, have a chat to the friends, uh, go home, have their tea, relax, unwind, and then the clock swings around to like eight o'clock at night, and you think, flipping heck, now I've got to start work, and that's when it gets depressing. And as Beth picked up herself, the uh, she's at her kind of most productive at the end of that school day because you're already in the work mindset, you have you haven't started that wind down process. And I just think as hard as it is, I think if you can see teaching as a job that actually finishes at, at six o'clock, just like kind of a, a normal office job and just work right up till that, then it doesn't become this job that just takes over your evenings and weekends. And I know flipping, I, I know from my own experience, that's a lot easier to say than do. But I just thought it was something interesting that, that, that Beth is probably one of the most enthusiastic NQTs I've spoke to and one of the most positive about a job that I've spoke to. And I don't think it's a coincidence that she's also one of those who's got a really set routine in place for when she does her work and she said uh, herself that the biggest thing that surprised her about this year was it wasn't as hard as she expected and I think that's down to the routines that she's put in place so that, that was one thing I took away from it and the second thing just a quick one as well is is this idea of planning and, and Beth's kind of two-page Tez rule and I, I just think that's a, a lovely thing and um, as I spoke to with with Steph Sullivan again and as I've any kind of time I do workshops with, with NQTs and so on, time spent planning is is, is such a big factor. And again, there's, there's two arguments going on here. There's the argument that you shouldn't reinvent the wheel. What's the point in, in spending your time putting a worksheet together or putting a PowerPoint together when someone else has, someone else has already uh, done it for you? But then that's got to be set aside against, firstly, the time it's going to take you to actually find that resource. And God almighty, there's tens of thousands of resources on Tez, and then you've got all the blogs and Twitter and so on. So there's a time that you spend actually trying to find the resource that you want. And then there's the, the, the fact that the resource won't be perfect. As Beth said, you, you often have a, a resource in your head of how exactly you want it. And when you find it, it, it's often not like that. And then you're faced with two choices. Either you go with it as it is, knowing that it's not quite exactly what you wanted, and that can often lead to trouble. Or you spend even more time then adapting it to suit your, your needs. And I like that idea that Beth has there. A two-page Tez rule, like I'm going to spend five minutes or ten minutes at most trying to find this resource or find something that's as close to it as possible and if I find it then I'm going to adapt it to suit my needs and if I don't find it I'm going to do it from scratch and often that can save you more time in the long run but more importantly the, the writing resources for yourself is an art form and it's an important part of the job it's an absolute crucial part of the job and often the lessons I see that don't go so well are lessons that teachers have found on Tez or any blog or website and just used, you know, as they were written by the author, not adapted them to suit their needs. So I think two things from that planning, don't spend all your time kind of searching for resources. And secondly, don't be afraid to either write your own resources or significantly adapt other people's resources. But anyway, that was it. So now all that remains for me to do is to hand back over to Beth for the uh, podcast puzzle. And I'll see you with a few closing words um, at the end of this. Alright, so you have 10 red socks and 10 blue socks in a drawer. It's midnight, but you need a pair of socks. 
you can't see the colours. You need to find a pair of socks that actually match. So, how many socks are you going to have to pick out until you know that you have a pair that will match? So, there you have it. Another Mr Barton Maths Podcast episode in the can. I really hope you enjoyed that one. All that remains for me to do is to once again thank my excellent guest, Beth Lilly, and also podcastthemes.com for providing the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout this show. Now, I'm recording this episode with just one school week to go of what has been the longest half term I have ever known in my entire life. So I'm going to take a little break from recording podcasts over the summer, and then I am back with some big name, exciting guests that I just cannot wait to record and, and get those interviews wrapped up and get them out to the world. So can I just thank all of you out there for listening? It really does uh, mean a lot to know that people are, are listening to these and, and finding them useful. And thanks for all your uh, your positive thoughts and comments over Twitter and emails that, that you send in. And as I say, if you haven't left a review and, and you've got like five seconds spare, I would genuinely uh, appreciate that one. And just take care of yourself. God, it's been a tough year for me. I'm sure it has been for, for all of you. Have a lovely, uh, relaxing summer. Apologies if you're listening to this and it's like September or something like that and you're thinking, oh, you're winding me up. It's nowhere flipping near summer. But if it is your summer holidays, have a great one. Take care. And I shall see you with some fresh episodes of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast very, very soon. Take care and bye for now. <laughs>